Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. Thank you to all the listeners, as we have surpassed 5,000 downloads in just two and a half months and 2,000 YouTube views. I appreciate everyone who has become a fan of the show, and I have big plans in store for the podcast in the coming months. Stay tuned for future episodes as I share those plans. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1775, a severely depleted and undersupplied Continental Army and Navy desperately needed supplies in order to fight for their freedom from British rule. Colonius, upset due to decades of paying high taxes to a crown across an ocean, felt they were getting nothing in exchange and were ready to declare their independence. But the colonists were mostly poor farmers and tradespeople who had been taxed to the brink of poverty and wars were expensive. George Washington, the commander-in-chief of the Continental Forces, knew his army needed supplies and established a naval force that could capture British supply ships that were being sent to support their troops in the colonies. A colonel from the colony of South Carolina named Christopher Gadsden was part of a seven-man committee charged with outfitting this new navy. He formed units of marines, which were naval infantry soldiers, who could board the British ships and complete the ship takeover, and they were outfitted with equipment and flags that bore a coiled rattlesnake and the phrase, Don't Tread on Me underneath. The flag became one of the most well-known images of the Revolutionary War, with a rattlesnake meant to replicate the ability of the colonies to coil up and strike at anyone who dared step on colonial rights. The flag and its famous phrase are still in use today by several anti-government civilian groups in America. Instead of the British monarchy, the new target of these groups is any form of government in America that is seen as too overpowered or overreaching from its constitutional design. In 2004, a man in Granby, Colorado, took this phrase to an entirely new level when he outfitted a large and powerful bulldozer with armor and weapons, effectively making it a homemade tank, and used the blade and treads of the bulldozer to take a stand against his perceived slights from the local government. This is the story of the homemade tank rampage. To best tell this story, we'll start with the man behind the bulldozer tank. Marvin John Hemeyer was born on October 28, 1951 in Castlewood, South Dakota. He grew up on a dairy farm and at age 20 he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force and in 1971 he was stationed at Lowry Air Base in Colorado for a few years before getting out of the Air Force. He returned to Colorado sometime after his military service, moving to the Denver area and opening a series of successful vehicle muffler shops. Sometime around 1989, Marvin began leasing his shops in Denver and set up a new shop in Granby. He bought a house in Grand Lake, about 16 miles from his muffler shop, and by all accounts, business was good. Marvin was known to snowmobile with a group in the winter, and while most people said he was easy to get along with, a few people said that if you crossed him, he was a difficult person to deal with. One person would later claim that after Marvin's muffler shop installed the wrong muffler on their truck, They threatened to not pay until the matter was fixed. Word got to them that Marvin threatened their life if they didn't pay, and so they paid cash to Marvin through a third party. In the mid-1990s, Marvin started to get involved in local politics. He was pro-gambling, and when politicians considered allowing legalized gambling in the area, he was very vocal about the issue. He almost got into a fight with an anti-gambling reporter after the reporter wrote an op-ed about the downsides to legalize gambling in small communities. Marvin went as far as to start his own newspaper that touted the benefits of gambling for the community. The newspaper only ran two episodes, and they were both just one giant op-ed for the legalization of gambling. 
His anger over the issue reached a boiling point when the town voted 4-1 to one to keep gambling in the community illegal. This led to Marvin shutting down his newspaper and he returned to his muffler business to lick his wounds. But several years later, a new issue would arise that served as the genesis for his eventual rampage. A local family, the Dochefs, wanted to move to Granby and open a new concrete batch plant on a vacant lot next to Marvin's muffler shop. The family had actually wanted to build the plant on the site of Marvin's muffler shop back in 1992, but the two acres of land had been auctioned off and Marvin had outbid the Dochefs paying $42,000 for the property. The lot had been used as a concrete plant before, thus the appeal to the Dochefs. Not completely dissuaded by being outbid eight years earlier, the Dochefs approached Marvin saying they wanted to buy the adjacent lot and turn it into a 23-parcel light industrial park centered around an indoor concrete plant. Marvin initially agreed to the sale at a price of $250,000. Shortly after the price was agreed upon, Marvin upped the sales price to $375,000, and after that was agreed upon, he upped it to $1 million. The rapid and ridiculous rise in price and negating of previous deals led to the Dochefs to back out of the deal altogether and set their sights on an empty area of land next to Marvin's parcel. The matter of building the concrete batch plant on this parcel of land was not an easy one. The area was not zoned for that type of plant, so it would need to get rezoned and there was plenty of concern about concrete dust from the plant getting into the air. A senior center nearby was worried about the increase in particulates and how it would affect their residents, many who had pre-existing breathing conditions. Local media covered the plant issue as independently as they could. They printed op-eds on both sides of the aisle, with Marvin writing and the papers printing several of his anti-plant narratives. Marvin visited the paper on a couple of occasions, requesting to speak with the paper's editor and voice his concerns over the plant. But in the end, the paper itself wrote an article that favored the plant with certain conditions. The conditions were not enough to appease Marvin, and he added the newspaper to his growing list of enemies against his interests. Marvin fought every legal and political battle he could against the plant, but always came up on the losing end. So before we get into more of the legal issues that are going on here, researching this case was difficult because there's a lot of contrary information in regards to Marvin's history in the area, in regards to some of the stuff going on with this concrete batch plant. Some of it all lines up, but some of it is very hard to pin a timeline on. I just wanted to kind of cover it on the surface level because it kind of, it all does set up to where Marvin's going to go on this rampage. Basically, from the way I understood it, this plot of land was a concrete plant uh, this two acres back in 1992 but it was it was a pretty rudimentary one it wasn't fancy by any means and it was shut down at the time so the land was available via auction and of course the Dochefs wanted it because they wanted to build their own concrete plant on the property it was already set up for that but Marvin had done pretty well he had these I think it was four muffler shops in Denver and not only was he making money off of them previous to him moving to the Granby area, but even after he moved to the Granby area, people were leasing the muffler shops from him. So he was still making money even though he didn't have to work there. So he had some spare cash in which to buy this property and, and put up his own muffler shop on it. So he outbids the Dochefs. And, and this is where it gets a little interesting is the timeline. It's said that the Dochefs approached him in 2000, but then in other places it said it was earlier. But the long and short of it is that the, the Dochefs, they had their own, uh, they had a concrete plant in a different area. But my guess is that just location-wise, Granby was a better area. It's west of Denver, kind of through the, the Rocky Mountains, but it sits kind of in a, in a decent spot to be able to get to a lot of different smaller communities on the western edge of the Rockies there. So when you're running concrete and this concrete plant was going to be designed to make things like culverts and concrete pre-made construction pieces and that kind of stuff, 
it just it would have been an easier location in Granby. So the Dochefs, they've got a very successful operation. I think it was called Mountain Lake Concrete or something along those lines. And they just want to move their entire operation to Granby. But they're obviously not, in 1992, willing to pay an overprice for this property. And I'm sure they that Marvin probably ran up the price quite a bit in this auction. And if you've ever been in an auction, there's sometimes those people that are there that they don't care what the actual value of the item is. They're just going to either overpay for it because they can, or they're going to make somebody else overpay for it. And sometimes they end up getting stuck with the property that they overpaid for. But these are usually people that can afford to take a loss on an item. They're just of the personality that if they want something, they're going to get it or they're going to make you pay more for it than than you should. And it kind of sounds like that's what happened with this original property. And after some time, the Dochefs approached Marvin and said, hey, you know, we'll, we'll buy a portion of that property from you. We still want to put a concrete plant in and it's just Marvin's personality, of course, to agree to a price and then realize, okay, well, if they're willing to pay that, maybe they're willing to pay a little bit more. Let me ask if they'll pay, you know, $125,000 more. Oh, they will? Okay, well, let's see if they pay a million. So it's a question of whether Marvin ever really wanted to sell that portion of the land for the concrete plant, or maybe originally he did, but then for some reason decided he didn't want the plant there so he was just going to make it an unreasonable price that he knew they wouldn't pay so the deal would fall through but either way it was clear that Marvin was not going to be an easy person to get along with and as I mentioned very early on it's going to come up again later everybody said Marvin was one of those guys that if you were his best friend he was going to treat you like a best friend he was going to help you out he was going to be there for you when you needed him but as soon as you became an enemy to him he was the worst type of person to have as an enemy he was a man to hold a grudge he was a man that was going to come after you with everything that he had and so a very polarizing type of person and it didn't sound like there's a whole lot of people in the middle he was either again best friends with somebody or he hated everybody that ever stood against him and and when this town votes four to one to keep legalized gambling out basically anybody that that was associated with the anti-gambling became his enemy which was you know roughly 80 percent of the town just by the way that the board voted so he's and he doesn't even live in granby and he often felt that granby treated people two different ways now he lived in grand lake which was 16 miles away but he was still considered an outsider he wasn't somebody that was born and raised in the area he was somebody who moved to the area and he always felt like and this does happen quite a bit in small towns in america that if you move to a small town you didn't you weren't born there you weren't raised there you didn't go to school there your family doesn't have a history there that you are quote unquote the outsider and so then your opinion doesn't matter people are going to vote against you just because you're an outsider and i think this is what marvin felt and and really there's this is a cultural thing there's no way to really change this but either he didn't understand that or he didn't realize that it was just going to take time if he had built bridges and built friendships and built rapport in the town then over time he might have been able to get some support behind him but he was just one of those guys that again once he picked up an issue he was bullheaded about it he was hard charging for it it was his way or the highway and that obviously turned a lot of people off just based on his behavior and so now he finds himself you know, having lost these two big battles, the, the gambling issue and then this rezoning. So basically the, the Dochefs came in and they they realized that they didn't want to deal with Marvin buying the property from him because of, of this outrageous price hike thing that he had done and, and going back on his uh, previous agreements for payment. So they set up a deal where they're going to buy this empty lot, this empty property next to Marvin's property and if you know anything about small towns or or city planning 
there's they set aside areas of the town for residential for commercial and for industrial and when something's zoned a certain way if a developer comes in and is, has plans to develop a zoning so if this was zoned as a probably was zoned as something like light commercial because it's between the senior center which is high density residential or medium density residential and this light industrial where the muffler shop is usually they put a buffer of some type of a commercial area in there so it's not industrial it's not going to be creating potential pollution or waste next to the residential area but it's also not going to be residential because that's going to buff up right next to the industrial area so usually these areas are zoned something like light commercial or medium commercial but in order to put this concrete batch plant on that property it's going to have to be zoned industrial and so this has to go through all types of different committees and boards and there's going to be people on both sides of the issue which they were here there's people at the senior home that are worried is this concrete plant going to create a bunch of byproduct dust in the air that's going to cause these breathing issues so there's it's not going to be an overnight process but there's going to be a lot of meetings and experts coming in to talk about particulates in the air and discuss how this is what conditions need to be met one of the conditions was this had to be an indoor plant with filtration systems so that as the concrete is made in in an indoor environment it's filtered all the dust is filtered before it gets outside and eventually it was deemed that if the plant was built this way that there wouldn't be an increase in particulates in the air at all and then the, there's you know obviously issues with sound if this thing's going to be running well they said because it's indoors most of the sound is going to be contained inside of the building and it's only going to operate during certain hours anyway so again all of these conditions are going to be met to the point that the the city decides this is a good thing it's going to bring jobs into the city at the plant this again the dough chefs had a very successful operation for many years as a family so this is a a win-win for the city in terms of jobs and stability and bringing economy into the town so eventually they're going to vote to approve the rezoning which then allows the dough chefs to buy it and put their their indoor concrete batch plant on there and to add insult to injury when the plant was approved the city required marvin to allow water and sewer access through his property to the new plant while the city had the right to require the easement martin saw this as another blow to his personal freedom and martin had purchased his property without it being hooked up to the city sewer he inquired about hooking up to the city sewer and he was advised that it would cost $75,000 of his own money for the installation which is almost twice what he paid for for the property and he felt it was the government's job to provide the sewer so he let the tank the previous owners installed fill up and then began pumping the sewage out into a ditch behind the property so it sounds like because this was a concrete plant that was probably built I'm going to guess somewhere back in the 60s or 70s, if it was out of business by the 90s, maybe even earlier. Uh, it was built when permits and requirements for buildings, that kind of stuff was a lot different. So it was built as a standalone. It didn't have to be in the, as a part of the, in the city sewer at the time it was built. And so when he took over the property, he was supposed to hook it up to the water and sewer line so that he could run sewage into the city sewer system and and whatnot well the property had this underground concrete tank basically that was served as the the sewage and when you have a system like that eventually it's going to fill up because every time you go to the bathroom use water whatever it might be on the property that is going into this storage tank and then you either have to pay somebody to come and pump all that stuff out to create more room in the tank or in this case he ends up just pumping it into a ditch behind his property which is illegal it's against city ordinance and, and against a whole bunch of i'm sure state environmental issues as well so he's going to be fined twenty five hundred dollars from the city and he's threatened with more fines until he hooks up the line and this obviously continues marvin's angry streak he paid his fine with a check and in the memo line he wrote the word cowards 
And as 2003 rolled around, Marvin had lost almost every battle he had partaken in. He had filed appeals and lawsuits and gained nothing but more anger as time progressed. So it came to no surprise when he sold his business in 2003 for $400,000 and appeared to throw up the white flag and leave town. And so not only is he losing these battles, these legal battles, every time he loses a battle, he's not a lawyer. He's not taking on these cases himself. Well, maybe he is. I guess I didn't look it up, but most people are going to hire a lawyer that's charging a ridiculous fee per hour to take these cases. And when you're not seeing any wins, you know everything that you're paying to this lawyer is a loss. The fact that you're continually losing these legal battles, obviously that's a loss. So he's just at the point where he spent a ton of money. He's not seeing anything going in his favor. So again, nobody in town is surprised when he sells his property uh, for $400,000. I think he sold it to, it was like a trash company um, that was going to be able to use the buildings to, to, to run a sanitation business out of it. And everybody just assumed that he was, he moved back to Grand Lake and they wouldn't see him around anymore and again there's a lot of people that were happy about this and they breathed a sigh of relief and went about their daily lives but what they didn't know was that marvin had brokered a deal during the sale to lease a large walled-in portion of an outbuilding on the property so this was a, a lease back situation so he agrees to the sale of the property to this trash company but in the contract or either after the contract was signed he went back to him and said hey if i give you x amount of dollars either a month or outright whatever it might be can i lease this storage area in a, sh a building on the property and I'm sure this trash company either didn't have plans for that or, or felt they could give up a small portion of this building and take in a little money on the side and they're fine with it and so at some point prior to the sale of this business he had purchased a Komatsu D-335A heavy-duty bulldozer. And this is a difficult thing to get over across the podcast, but if you could picture a bulldozer and then picture a bulldozer on steroids, that's what this thing is. It's, it's not your typical small bulldozer you're going to see running around a, a small construction site. It's not quite as big as you think for a, say an open pit mine or something. It's not one of the like gigantic, gigantic bulldozers, but this thing is as heavy duty as it gets. This thing is a, a serious piece of machinery. And visually, again, I just, I have to describe if you could picture a bulldozer and then picture a bulldozer on steroids, that's what this thing is. And he claimed he purchased it so that he could pick up an odd construction job here and there and and again he picked this up around the time he sold the business so he it was one of two things either he was going to pick it up because i think he got it from an auction in california or something like that he got it for cheap so i think he thought he could either flip it to make some money and and he was very good with his hands and fixing stuff so it might have been something where it was this thing needs some tlc it needs a tune-up and maybe some things on it fixed and so he thought he could fix it up and then again flip it but he ends up not being able to sell this dozer when when he had hoped to but he does have this storage area that he is leasing and this is a time in his life when he starts to think that he's got this higher purpose he's, he's, he mentions that he believes everything in his life is is has put him on a path from God towards this higher meaning. And so he feels now that the sale of the business, the purchase of the dozer, his inability to sell the dozer, these are all missions from God. And he was given these skills from God to be able to send a message to the town and to those that he saw as unrighteous and immoral. And the, the outbuilding that he requested to lease, the portion of the outbuilding, had a, like a large garage door on it. And he found that his bulldozer fit through the doors to the garage with just an inch of clearance on either side. And so he took this to be another sign from God that what he was about to do was part of a larger plan. His project would take 18 months and require thousands of hours of work, mostly at night, in the confines of his shop. 
Marvin measured out and fabricated dozens of steel plates and panels that connected to a twin panel, creating a hollow structure inside. Using a portable concrete mixer, he filled the hollow portions of the skeleton with concrete and welded the panels together until he had one giant shell of armor that could be lowered over the cockpit and engine of the bulldozer. And so to describe this again, he's taking, let's just for size wise, say a four foot by four foot panel, and he's cutting four foot by four foot panel of steel, a four foot by four foot panel of steel, making kind of a skeleton out of this so the inside is hollow. He's very good at welding, so he's probably welding supports, and then he fills the inside space between these two steel panels with concrete. And he does this all over the engine compartment of the bulldozer. So there's a kind of a, think of like a turtle shell that goes over the top of the engine of the dozer. There's a turtle shell that goes over the cockpit area of the bulldozer. And eventually there's gonna be one final piece that goes onto the top of the bulldozer. And so he's got this very heavy, very secure armor all over the the main parts of the bulldozer. And this is what they referred to as cheap man's composite armor because you've got the steel that provides protection from penetration, but then you've got the concrete that, while it's hard, serves as kind of a somewhat of an absorption insulation for the armor and then you've got another piece of steel to support the backside of that absorption so this is not exactly how modern tank armor is made but it's pretty similar in it's just rudimentary design and he's got this all over any quote-unquote weak point on his bulldozer and because the the final piece of armor was dropped over the top of the cockpit while Marvin was inside, there was no hatch for anyone to access the cockpit. So short of a military anti-armor round, the bulldozer had been made into a tank that was virtually unstoppable by local law enforcement. Because the armor covered all the glass in the cockpit, Marvin installed several cameras around the bulldozer that would serve as his eyes while driving the tank. The camera lenses themselves were covered with three inch thick bulletproof clear material that had air blowing devices on the sides to clear dust and debris from the camera lens. So he's clearly thought of everything. His plan is to demolish buildings with this blade. He knows brick, mortar, dust, debris is going to be falling on top of the bulldozer. And so the last thing he needs is to have this dirt, dust, debris sitting in front of the camera lens and making him blind inside of this thing. So he's got air jets that blow high velocity air that's going to clear these camera ports so he's going to be able to see at all times out of these these cameras on the monitors inside the tank where again he is completely entombed in this armor there's no weak point there's no hatch there's no anything like that for people to be able to get in and while lacking the typical main tank gun barrel, Marvin had outfitted the tank with three gun ports that allowed him to aim and fire three guns from within the cockpit. This gave him the offensive capabilities he needed to de- deter anyone from getting too close to the tank and do damage to things from afar. I'm actually kind of surprised, based on how much time he spent on this tank, I'm thankful, but I'm kind of surprised that he didn't install some type of a large cannon or high hot really high caliber delivery device for this quote-unquote tank he does have these three gun ports Uh, one of the gun ports did have a 50 caliber rifle capable of disabling vehicles and if he had hit a person with it you could definitely cut a person in half the 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 amount of gunpowder and the weight of the bullet out of this 50 caliber sniper rifle would definitely dismember a person or cut them in half if he was able to hit them with it but he's also able to these these 50 caliber sniper rifles are used by the military to disable uh, light armored vehicles and uh, do a large amount of damage to troops and then the other two gun ports had a .308 caliber rifle and a 22 caliber rifle and, and again, if he doesn't have these rifles on there, if he's just this armored shell driving around the bulldozer, there's nothing, the bulldozer can't go fast enough to really be a threat 
to a person they can outmaneuver this bulldozer pretty easily so people could climb on it people could get close to it people could sit there and 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 shoot at it without ever having to worry about anything coming down range their way out of it but because he's got these three gun ports he's got offensive capabilities to reach out and cause damage from afar while he's sitting inside this impenetrable tank and as he's working on this tank his father passed away on march 26 2004 and any hesitations with his plan probably ceased at that point as well and what i mean by that is there's a lot of people and i'm sure there's there's many of these cases and we just don't hear about them because they don't follow through with their plan but there's many people who the motivation to do something like this the the project itself is where their motivation is and they just don't ever follow through with it at the end because there's too many risks involved and in this case it's possible that if his father hadn't passed away if if he's got any relationship with his father it could be something where he's not going to commit this rampage while his father's alive because he's going to bring shame upon his father is anything like that that's what i'm trying to say here is that if there was any hesitation if this was just a, i'm going to build this thing but then i'm not going to follow through with the plan because it could hurt those that are closest to me or bring shame to the family once his father passes away it's, it's possible he there was nothing left in his life that he was going to be ashamed about what he was going to do so it's going to be shortly after this uh, in the spring of 2004 that he's completing his tank and he made a series of seven audio recordings to serve as his manifesto so we have you know the unabomber ted kaczynski wrote out his manifesto and his was about how technology was ruining humankind marvin's two hours and 45 minutes of audio recordings were not the same it wasn't a calm laying out of his reasoning for carrying out his rampage but it was more of a rambling expletive filled venting session against anyone and anything that he felt has ever wronged him so again it wasn't a sit down with a script and say for two hours and 45 minutes talk about a specific agenda or motivation it was literally he's this loner guy he's never been married doesn't have kids again you can have him as a best friend but as soon as you do something to cross him he's now your enemy so he doesn't have a lot of people close to him so he's spending hours upon hours upon hours walled up in this shop uh, making this tank and so he doesn't have anyone to vent to and he can't tell anybody about his rampage so these are what these audio tapes are and this is literally what they sound like is someone with without a script just rambling on about everything that's ever wronged him about how much he hates all of these people in this town that have wronged him and he doesn't really even have evidence for a lot of things he uses the terms i've convinced myself or i've come to believe about a lot of things without presenting any evidence so it's clear that in his mind especially sitting alone working on this tank for so long that a lot of his beliefs may not even be true it's just something he's convinced himself of and so that's again that's what these two hours and 45 minutes of audio manifesto it's basically just a giant venting session and then he's his only levity during the tapes is his explanation of how he felt god had picked him for this mission we talked about that before that the, that the sale of the business the purchase of this dozer the inability to sell the dozer he felt like god had picked him for this mission which is convenient which means he removes his own free will from much of the equation as he claims it was god's will that kept him single his whole life and gave gave him the financial means to carry out the rampage and in removing his own free will he's able to justify all of his actions as not his own conscious choices and consequences but simply him acting as god intended and carrying out god's plan and what i mean by that is it's it's convenient to look back on your life and say well, I guess I'm single because God wanted me to be single. Like, no, you're probably single because you have this 
angry side to you and this venting side to you and this if you cross me you're now my enemy side to you and and relationships are about compromise relationships are about getting through tough times together and it's pretty tough to have a relationship with somebody who acts this way and and we're going to refer to him as pretty childish later on and I can only imagine he was childish in his relationship so again it's convenient for him to remove his own contributions to how his life has turned out this way and just like the sale of the dozer it's very possible that he overpaid for the dozer just like he overpaid for his property and even though he may have fixed it up or or got it running again or whatever he might have done he may have not been willing to sell it for a decent price or if he did the same thing he did with the dochefs and said okay i'll sell you this dozer for 50 grand they agree to it okay well 60 grand they agreed to that okay 100 grand and they back out of the deal that's not god making sure this deal doesn't go through that's that's your own inability to understand the concept of a business deal understand the concept of free enterprise and and how your your own actions are affecting things so after mailing his audio tapes to his brother he climbed in the cockpit of the bulldozer and lowered the armored shell on top of the upper section of the dozer sealing himself in he had enough food and water in the cab for a week and he brought along with him two handguns. He cranked the air conditioning that was designed to keep him cool throughout the rampage and crashed through the wall of the outbuilding and into the unsuspecting world just before 2 p.m. on June 4, 2004. His first target was the concrete plant, the source of so much disdain and anger for the last four plus years. He drove the now 61.5 ton machine onto the concrete plant's property and used the 410 horsepower engine to crash into the concrete plant building again and again. And if if you're a car buff, you may think, well, 410 horsepower isn't that great. That's a you know souped up muscle car off the factory floor now. It's gonna give you 410 horsepower, but this thing is geared with 410 horsepower at a very low gear ratio so you can get a lot of torque out of every piece of power and so you're talking about i think it's max speed was somewhere around seven miles per hour but seven miles per hour moving a 62 and i i saw anywhere between 60 and 80 tons for how much this bulldozer weighed that thing moving at seven miles an hour is going to do some serious damage and a worker for the plant jumped into a large road grader and tried to block marvin's exit from the plant so the dozer would be contained to the plant but marvin powered forward and pushed the large machine out of its path as if it was was a small car so this is one of those articulated road grader machines you see where there's kind of a cab in the front and then looks like you know the back end can swing freely it's got a big area for dropping either gravel or whatever onto the road itself and so these are some pretty powerful and heavy machine and this 60 plus ton bulldozer just pushed it out of the way as if it was a small car and marvin had predetermined the buildings he was going to target based on their involvement in any of the perceived negative action against him after leaving the plant he destroyed a police vehicle on his way to the electric company the electric company had employed a couple members of the local government whom had allowed the rezoning of the concrete plant he sheared the front of the building off and targeted a pickup truck in the lot that belonged to a man whose only crime was refusing to sign a petition marvin had drafted about one of his many issues he destroyed that man's truck and headed towards the center of town while driving into the town hall that also housed a small library he destroyed a playground and three more vehicles before he was satisfied that the home of the local government was a pile of rubble. He targeted the bank where a town board member had worked and then destroyed the local newspaper building for their stance in support of the concrete plant. He then took out the former mayor's house and his adjacent business. The mayor had died three years earlier, but his property was still a target for Marvin. His rampage lasted 90 minutes while he damaged or destroyed 13 buildings. Anything on the street became a target. He shot at police officers, but thankfully missed all of his shots. He ran into and over parked cars and police made several attempts to stop the rampage. Although their small arms fire was ineffective, they fired over 200 rounds into the tank 
and likely this made the situation more dangerous via the ricochet of the bullets. A SWAT team was summoned and tried putting a flashbang grenade down the exhaust pipe but appeared to have no effect. And this I did question. I, I mean, I know it's difficult as a law enforcement officer. You're going to try everything on your tool belt to, to bring a, a stop to this vehicle. But after the first officer shoots at this tank and realizes there's no way that a 9mm or 45 caliber bullet out of a handgun is going to penetrate this armor, any other shooting at this armored vehicle it's it's only creating a safety hazard police officers always have to be responsible for where your round goes down range and so this is a town now they had tried to evacuate most of the town there'd been a an emergency call put out to everybody's phone saying get out of town because of this event going on so most people had evacuated but as a police officer you're not supposed to be shooting rounds off that you can't account for where they're going to end up. So again, 10, 15, 20, maybe even 50 rounds each officer as they get there, not realizing that other officers have shot maybe a round or two into this armored vehicle, realize this is doing nothing and, and I'm putting other people at danger by shooting. I'll stop. 200 rounds seems a little excessive if if they're not doing anything and and these 200 rounds have to go somewhere in the town and then this this flashbang down the exhaust pipe it's a great idea if you can get into that engine and cause some damage any way possible you got to try what you got to try and the exhaust pipe was exposed they're able to climb on top and and drop this grenade in there but a flashbang grenade it's mainly built for the the light and the, the shock from the sound and it can do some damage but not necessarily explosive it's, there's not there's no projectile out that's going to come off the outside no shrapnel that comes off of it it's it's designed to not be a lethal round from from any distance so again something you try but it's likely not going to have much of an effect now reports say that c4 plastic explosives were used and found to have no effect and it's not clear where these came from, but it's possible that a, a local mining or construction company had them on hand. This is very near in the Rocky Mountains, so when a company needs to blast rocks, it's likely that they're going to have some explosives laying around. This is not something I would expect a local police department or sheriff's department to have sitting around unless it was some type of a you know, sitting in an evidence room as a part of a, a seizure, but I'd... <laughs> I don't even know, again, you'd have to have a detonator for it, you'd have to have somebody trained to to deploy this, and I don't know how much they would have had and, and how safe it would have been to try to explode this if he's going into buildings, especially with C4 attached to the bulldozer. So again, it just mentioned that explosives had no effect on it and that some C4 was used. And Marvin, in the meantime, was shooting at propane tanks and electrical transformers with his guns, but luckily there was no large-scale explosions or fires, and the propane tanks were next to a lumber yard, which was next to a senior center, and many people theorized there would have been a high death toll if he had been able to get a propane tank to start on fire that would have spread to the lumber yard that would have then spread to the senior center. But it sounds as if it wasn't so much that the bullets weren't having any effect it was that marvin was a terrible shot and and missed these tanks and electrical transformers and there are reports after the rampage reports that the police deny but some still believe to be true that law enforcement had requested military assistance via an anti-tank missile and the reports say this was considered but the collateral damage if the missile missed or deflected and exploded in the town was too high and so there are specific anti tank rounds either fired from some type of a shoulder launch system like a javelin or they mentioned in one of the stories a hellfire missile from an apache attack helicopter that's designed to, to penetrate the armor to basically eat through the armor and get into the middle of the uh, vehicle before it explodes it doesn't explode on the outside uh, these are called uh, sable rounds and they light very likely would have been effective because they're designed to take out 
modern battle tanks. So it is very possible that, that if they had gotten their hands on one of these, or, and, and it did say that the National Guard was on standby during this, and there are several full-time military bases in the area that would have had the capabilities to take out this vehicle. But again, the police deny that these requests were made, but we do know that the military was advised and they were kind of in a standby mode. So it is very possible that there were discussions and it was just decided that it was it was too dangerous to basically launch a anti-armor attack in a civilian uh, area. So a plan was made to use another piece of heavy equipment to try and trap the dozer. It was believed that if the machine encountered enough weight without being able to get a head start, it could be wedged against something solid like a building. The same heavy equipment operator that tried to block Marvin in before he made it to town used some heavy equipment to pin Marvin's dozer against the wall of the hardware store. And the dozer laden with the extra weight of the armor and up against another heavy and powerful machine could not push the other machine out of the way from a standing start. So when it hit this grater earlier, it was it hit it at this full like seven miles per hour. So it's got momentum behind it to apply that weight against the other machine. In this case, it's it's at a dead stop and it's trying to build up enough force to move this machine but because it's starting from a dead stop and because it weighs so much with the armor on top of it it just can't get going in and in i think this was in reverse and it's just it's also important that at this point i think the dozers has sustained some serious damage from demolishing all these buildings probably from hitting the heavy equipment early on it was said that it was leaking fluid so it's very possible that it had lost uh, a lot of horsepower at this point or, or ability to produce uh, horsepower so it was it was limping at this point and so marvin made the decision to try and drive through the hardware store so he could regain his momentum and continue his assault on the town so he knew he couldn't go backwards he's pinned basically a the, the hardware store is in front of him and this machine is behind him and he's just kind of pinned there and he was either unaware or forgot in the moment that the hardware store had a basement and the weight of the dozer plummeted one of the treads through the ground floor and into the basement this caused the dozer to be stuck and it lacked the traction and the power to get itself out of its predicament as law enforcement closed in on the dozer, a single gunshot rang out, and Marvin had taken his own life inside the armored cab. When the damages were totaled up, Marvin's one-man rampage caused over $7 million in 2004 money, which is over $11 million in today's money worth of damage. If there was anything to be happy about, it was that the only death that occurred was Marvin's death, and property can be rebuilt. Marvin's actions caused an immediate and severe polarizing reaction out of Americans. While many saw him as a churlish and immature revenge artist, others saw him as a sort of folk hero, a man who stood up to the government. The fact that no innocent people were killed were used by his supporters to show that he, all he wanted to do was make a statement and he never meant anyone harm. His opponents would say that he was a bad shot and was lucky that no police officers or civilians were killed by his actions. And Marvin's family doesn't support either side. They say he wasn't anti-government, and that sounds wrong, I guess, based on his actions, but they say he was proud of his service to his country and he pays his taxes. They say his anger is with certain people that he felt were corrupt and he never meant to be an anti-government martyr. His family believes are somewhat backed up by Marvin's audio recordings. In those recordings, he talks about people and specific events and how they make him angry. He doesn't speak about government as a whole or his actions as part of a bigger system. And so this is, again, immediately after this, you had the nickname for his bulldozer was Killdozer. There was a high school kid that made a website and it was like killdozer.us or something along those lines. And all of these extreme right-wing anti-government people were saying hey you know this is this is the timothy mcveigh without killing a hundred and some odd innocent people he, he basically he took it to the man he destroyed the town hall he destroyed the newspaper he destroyed everything that was that was corrupt in the the local government and and he was a man who had 
had to deal with a lot and he was finally fed up and, and decided to do something about it. He's a, he's a hero. And then you had the other people, especially the townspeople that were saying, no, this is just a lunatic that created a tank and decided to be a five-year-old and, and drive his tank through everything that he could just because he didn't get his way. It was basically a, a giant temper tantrum. So you had both sides and then you had the family coming out saying, he was just really pissed off at a whole bunch of people, and he did what he did as a way to get back at those specific people. It wasn't part of this big anti-government plan. It was just he'd had it with these specific people, and that does fit his thing. As many people said, if you crossed him, he was going to be your worst enemy. It just happened to be that all the people that crossed him worked for the local government, so it made it look probably more like it was against government, but... It was really against the, the specific people who had taken action. And for example, he took down the mayor's house and business, even though the mayor had been dead for three years. There's really no tie to the fact that that wasn't a statement against the government. That was, he was pissed that he couldn't physically harm or do anything to the mayor anymore. So he took out his house and his property three years after the guy died so again it was clearly he was angry at specific individual people now at the end of the day marvin appeared to a man who was filled with anger and had convinced himself that he was given a mission from god to punish those individuals and businesses that he saw as corrupt and that was as far as his aspirations went he was remembered by many as a good friend and many other as their worst enemy he was clearly a man who could hold a grudge, and unfortunately his anger and inability to cope with frustration cost him his life and spread fear and anger throughout a small town. The bulldozer itself was actually disassembled into several small pieces, and those small pieces were then secreted to several metal recycling shops throughout the Colorado area. The investigators, law enforcement, feared that this Granby, Colorado would become kind of a mecca for these anti-government groups and people would come and try to either get a piece of this killdozer or rebuild it or something along those lines. So great effort was made to destroy this homemade tank and the armor for it and, and get rid of it in a way that, that it couldn't be used in any form of a copycat situation or, again, as is some type of a uh, a mecca uh, situation but that is the story of the homemade tank rampage thank you guys for listening uh, stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at true blue crime productions at gmail.com you can also find me at true blue crime productions on facebook and support me via patreon at true blue crime productions that's it for today guys thanks for listening talk to you later goodbye